The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. So if these Islamist organizations want to stay in these contexts and keep playing the democratic game, they need to commit to the democratic game in the longer run. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. During the Arab Spring, it was the conservative parties who were the most active in elections. They were part of a movement called Islamism. They embraced democracy as a means to bring religious values into politics. However, many questioned whether they truly believed in democracy or just elections. Islamism challenges and confounds our traditional notions about democracy. For starters, it's difficult to imagine Islamic fundamentalists as champions of democracy. Furthermore, many believe the type of democracy Islamists support falls far short of what we expect in terms of minority rights, checks and balances, and the rule of law. So, do Islamists really believe in democracy? Shebnam Gamushju has studied Islamist parties in Egypt, Tunisia, and Turkey. She is an associate professor of political science at Middlebury College and the author of Democracy or Authoritarianism, Islamist Governments in Turkey, Egypt, and Tunisia. You might remember her from an episode a few months back about the Turkish elections. It featured Shebnam and Burke Essen. Today, Shebnam and I discuss why some Islamist parties promote democratic values, while others merely support elections. Her explanation sheds light on how other political parties behave as well. So, while Islamist parties might sound like a special case, they reveal quite a bit about what makes democracies work. Now, if you like this podcast, please give the show a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Over the past few weeks, I've been speaking to organizations and companies about sponsorship opportunities on the podcast. A few should start early in 2024. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the podcast, I want to talk to you. Please send me an email to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Shebnam Gamustia. Shebnam Gamustia, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for having me. So Shebnam. I actually really loved your book, Democracy or Authoritarianism, Islamist Governments in Turkey, Egypt, and Tunisia. I thought it was one of the best books of the year, and that means a lot because we're at the end of the year. So I've read a lot of books from 2023, and I think that this book just puts such an interesting spin in terms of political parties by looking at it in terms of Islamist parties specifically. So we're going to be talking about Islamism. 
But I think that a lot of the concepts help us understand ideas about democracy and understand how political parties work within democratic and even authoritarian contexts. So really excited to be able to talk to you about this. But as we kind of kick off, one of the problems I have whenever I think of the Middle East and I think of Islamist parties is I'm struggling to understand what is Islamism. In fact, I talked to Shadi Hamid about it and I asked him, what is Islamism? And I'm not even sure that I got an answer that I feel great about. So I want to hear from you just your explanation, just a broad overview, what unites these different parties together that they describe themselves as Islamist? That's a great question. And I'm teaching a seminar on political Islam. It takes an entire semester to unpack that question. And we still end up with more questions than answers by the end of the semester. So I really like this definition of Islamism, which I also borrow from an amazing scholar, is basically Islamism is activism in the name of Islam. But I also understand that that's very broad. You know, what is activism in the name of Islam and what is the content of that activism in the name of Islam? It can actually take very different shapes and forms. And then Islamism, in my view, is a family of ideologies and movements that are motivated by some Islamic principles. And that Islamic principle that they're inspired by may be really different, and we're going to talk about it in, in greater detail in this hour. So it can be very much in line with democratic principles. It can be very much in line with theocratic principles. So that's why we actually have all these range or spectrum of Islamisms and that's also what I think, like, you know, we need to talk about Islamisms rather than Islamism, as if there is one monolithic ideology that actually describes all of these different organizations that we observe in different contexts. There are Islamisms on a wide spectrum that can take very different political orientations and different tactics and different strategies. Some of them are violent, some of them are nonviolent, some of them are very much happy to participate in elections. They're really doing an amazing job in electoral races. Or some of them are really eager, like in the case of Iran, to establish a theocratic state. So there's a very wide range of movements and ideological orientations within the broader umbrella of what we call Islamism. So you would include Iran and some of the more authoritarian forms of Islamic government under Islamism. In fact, I'm wondering whether you would even go so far to include something like Hamas that is terrorist organization. And I don't know, maybe Saudi Arabia that has a very theocratic government, but has been an enemy to Islamist movements. I mean, again, this is part of the reason why I'm struggling with what is Islamism. So that's the difficulty. Saudi Arabia and Iran, for example, have very different structures. They both self-identify as Islamic states. One of them is basically run by clerical establishment, the mullahs in the Iranian regime. And the other is an absolutist monarchy that gets significant support from Sunni ulama. And then we have Hezbollah, Hamas, who are actually using violent means as well as electoral means to appeal to their constituencies and you know, meet their needs. And then we have those political parties that I study closely, where there is no word of violence, no word of a theocratic state. They completely reject the idea of theocracy, and they're very much in tune with what they call a civil state, where there is no space for a theocratic establishment. 
And they argue that Islam is perfectly fine with a space of political parties, pluralism, diversity of opinions. They can run in elections if they get the support of their people, that they can come to power and then they implement policies. So all of them are actually within that larger framework and family of Islamisms. But it's important that we understand there is no underlying core beyond the idea of activism in the name of Islam. So if I talk to somebody who's part of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and defines themselves as a member of that movement and thinks of themselves as an Islamist, and I ask them, is Saudi Arabia an Islamist state? Is Iran an Islamist state? What would they tell me? That's a very good question. This is really about Muslim Brotherhood's ideology. It won't be, you know, generalizable to all Islamist organizations. So a Muslim Brotherhood member, depending on what faction they're close to, (laughs) they would argue that neither Saudi Arabia nor Iran is the proper Islamic model of governance because they're eager to participate in democratic politics. And they would say Islam actually has a democratic space entrenched, embedded in it. And a proper Islamic political space should actually give some power to the people rather than establishing an absolute monarchy. Indeed, in Saudi Arabia, the strongest opposition movement to the monarchy, absolutist monarchy, came from movements that actually joined or kind of shared Muslim Brotherhood understanding in the 1990s and late early 2000s. And Saudi regime basically crushed them because they felt really threatened. And they were also very much threatened by Muslim Brotherhood's one-year presidency in power, you know, under Morsi. They were very much intimidated by that example because that space was very much democratic despite its problems, much more democratic than Saudi Arabia can ever be. And they were very much concerned that, oh, this is a space where Islam and democracy can coexist. And we really do not want our people to see that model. So in the countries that you looked at, Tunisia and Egypt and Turkey, I get the impression that for people who live there, Islamism is connected, if not to democracy, at least to elections to legitimate the rule of those in power. Am I understanding that right? Yes, in a nutshell. So many people have been arguing Islam and democracy may not be compatible. And what I try to do in this book is actually to argue against that understanding, that assumption, by showing that indeed, especially these parties, what I call mainstream Islamist parties that pursue nonviolent activism in a civil democratic space, they're really good with elections. They accept elections as a legitimate form of electing a leader, and they're really good at organizing their grassroots movement and build connections with their constituencies, understand their needs, respond to those needs. And then when they come to power in elections, they really do a good job in providing public services and goods. So when you think about democracy, they really kind of understand how democracy works and they play the game really well. But the real issue is what is democracy and what do these Islamist parties understand as democracy and democratic is what I'm trying to unpack here. And there are clear disagreements within each of these political parties and not the Muslim Brotherhoods, FJP and AKP in Turkey. They all have a different understanding. Different factions have different understanding of what democracy should be. 
Yeah, just to kind of put a face to these ideas, people in the democracy space, democracy movements, have generally described Turkey today as authoritarian. So they don't describe it as a democracy any longer. So a lot of people would bristle if we describe Erdogan as a Democrat, a small d Democrat. However, I've come to find that elections make up a big part of Erdogan and the AKP's political identity, that they wouldn't want to get rid of elections wholesale because it would undermine the way that they think about politics and governance. So even though that they might attack free speech, even though that they have a very repressive state in terms of the press, elections are very important to them. So when we think of these states, even if they're authoritarian, even if we don't describe them as democracies sometimes, we have to make sure that we recognize the fact that they are embracing elections, not just as part of the state, but almost as part of their political identity. Absolutely. That has something to do with Islamism and tradition of Islamist imaginary that these parties rest on. And the reason why I say that is Islamism, yes, it's inspired by Islamic principles, but Islam is completely silent when it comes to governance and political systems, right? So there is nothing in the Islamic tradition that actually tells us what an Islamic state should like. There is even no idea of an Islamic state to begin with. So this is really a modern ideology that pops up with the 19th century's trauma that Muslim societies are facing with the rising power of European colonizing empires. And they feel really threatened. And in response to that threat, they're responding with the idea of maybe Islam can actually help us salvage our societies and establish some kind of counterforce to what we are facing from European imperial powers. So there's a lot of historical trajectory there. And most of these activists who are inspired by Islam start to imagine an Islamic state, Islamic society that could fight against European colonialism. But Islam is still like in a shell, a set of principles that is still silent when it comes to politics. It doesn't say anything about what an Islamic state should look like. So it's all about these activists within their own context, starting to imagine what an Islamic society or state would look like in their own contexts. Kind of reminds me of what Americans go through with the Christian right, where Christianity doesn't necessarily say that governance has to work a specific way. But at the same time, there are some very clear interpretations of what some people would like governance to look like who adopt more religious themes. So is that a fair parallel or is that a little bit of a stretch? No, no, I think that's, that's quite fair of a parallel because going back to your earlier question, one of the key issues of some of these political parties that I study was to bring back the role of Islam and Islamic principles to the public space because they were very much at an unease and discomfort with ongoing secularization of their societies, with ongoing westernization that started in the 19th century. And Egypt, Tunisia, and Turkey, they were all part of the secular republican and authoritarian trends. So they're very much these, you know, Muslims who have conservative attitudes. They want religion to play a prominent role in public space, in family life, in social spaces. They, they feel like 
their religion and religious values are sidelined and they cannot even practice their religious beliefs properly because of the secular Republican authoritarian framework that is imposed on them by some elite. So in reaction to that, they take up two things. Number one, democratic activism, because these Republican secular norms are very much imposed on them in an authoritarian manner. So like democracy now becomes a tool available to them to fight back. Like, okay, let's establish a political party and let's fight against this authoritarian imposition of secular ideas. And maybe we can bring Islam back into the public space through democratic channels. So Erdogan, for example, looks like an autocratic leader, but he was really a democratic figure early on because he was carrying the mantle of conservative Muslims who want to see greater freedoms of religion and freedom of conscience in Turkey. The same goes for Tunisia and Nahda, the same goes for Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So there is that interesting tension between democratic politics and bringing religion and religious values back into the political and social space. Yeah, I I don't think a lot of people remember how the AKP was really a democratizing force around the turn of the century, where some of the more religious laws that they put in place weren't so much about imposing religion, but allowing people to express their religion. For example, women being able to wear the hijab at universities or be able to work and wear the hijab. It was illegal to do that. In America, that would just blow people's minds if they were told that they weren't able to just do the basic expressions of their religious faith in their school or at work. I mean, not imposing their religious ideas, but just to be able to do the things that they thought were necessary, like just to wear a cross, a Muslim person to be able to wear a hijab. Things like that are just kind of taken for granted in the United States. In Turkey, that wasn't the case. So the AKP looked almost liberalizing the Turkish state when it made these changes that allowed for greater religious expression. Exactly. So that's why AKP and some of these Islamist parties are really puzzling because they can serve democratization and liberalization in their societies, especially if they are playing that role to provide greater freedom of religion to the people. And interestingly, all three of these countries that I study are Muslim-majority countries. So the majority of the population identify as Muslims. Maybe they're not all conservative, but they still have their Muslim identity. So it's very interesting how AKP in its earlier years was indeed talking a lot about a different type of secularism to define the Turkish polity and Turkish society not a French laïcité kind of almost restrictive, not almost, but definitely restrictive secularism, where you cannot wear a cross, you cannot wear a hijab in the public space. That's completely refused. And I was in college at the time when the government in 1997 passed that legislation to make it impossible and illegal for women to wear hijab. That's very much against the freedom of religion. So when AKP came to power, The way they talked about secularism was very much a liberal understanding of secularism. Let people practice their religious beliefs, you know, whatever they want to do in the public space in terms of their expression of their religious belief. That should be fine and that should not be defined or restricted by the state. So that is very much close to what we call Anglo-Saxon understanding of secularism, like what we have in the United States. So 
you see a divide between Islamists who are, on the one hand, liberal and believe in what on this podcast we would describe as a thicker version of democracy versus electoralists that are a little bit closer to authoritarianism, maybe embracing almost a competitive authoritarianism where you have elections, but doesn't feel like a free society at the same time. Let's focus on the liberal side for a moment here. Why are some Islamists liberal? Like, why do they embrace liberalism? Why do they embrace pluralism? Like, what makes them Islamist at the same time? Again, great question. There can be multiple factors that indeed explain why some Islamists end up at the liberal end of the spectrum. It can be about their personal experiences. It can be about their exposure to different ideas. It can be about their political learning curve or their, you know, family upbringing and some kind of, you know, personal experience that define their ideas and, and norms. And maybe they start at the electoral end of the spectrum and they may end up in the liberal spectrum because they face some kind of repression perhaps at one point or they were exposed to more liberal democratic practices when they were in exile in the United Kingdom or United States. So there may be multiple reasons why one would end up being a liberal Islamist. And it's really hard to theorize that because it's so personal. At the same time, it's really hard to theorize. But what we need to kind of maybe pay attention is to that diversity of opinions that exist within every Islamist party, every Islamist organization. They're never monolithic. They never, you know, have a consensus or full agreement on what the movement should do and what the movement should strive for. That is what I'm trying to unpack. But I also appreciate the complexity of the question why some people would end up on the liberal end and some people would end up at the electoral end of that spectrum. Let's put a face to the idea. Rashid Ganoushi is a great example of somebody who's both a liberal Democrat as well as an Islamist. He was the leader of Anada over in Tunisia. That was the most successful case of democracy to come out of the Arab Spring, and really the most successful democracy that we've seen in the Arab world thus far. So why don't you just explain this concept through the experience of Ganoushi and explain how he came to embrace liberalism and see it as complementary to his ideas about Islamism. Danushi was, from the get-go, he was very much friendly with the idea of democracy. He was very much like, no, we need to establish a political party and that political party should be part of the political space and it should run in elections. And if it comes to power, it should have power to implement policies. So he never had a question about Islam and democracy. It was very much clear to him as early as 1980s. And then we see him getting into a new phase in the 1990s where he starts to explore that connection between Islam and democracy from a very theoretical perspective and trying to unpack what it means to have an Islamic democracy. So he has an intellectual journey that happens when he is in exile in the United Kingdom. He's living in a liberal democratic society now, and he observes firsthand what it looks like. And at the same time, he unpacks Islam and democracy and that relationship between the two. And eventually he arrives at a point where Islam becomes and informs liberal 
norms and liberal democratic norms and values for him. And that is exactly what I mean by liberal Islamism. So that may sound a bit like, you know, strange to many people like, you know, how can Islamism be liberal? And the idea is the liberal Islamists believe that Islam indeed informs some of the key principles that underlie liberal democracy. So Rashid Ganushi is really insistent in the idea that democratic values and norms, pluralism and liberal democracy is not a Western concept exclusively. Islam actually underpins some of the critical aspects of equality, social justice and freedom to pursue your goals as individuals because we as human beings are a reflection of God on earth and we are all enjoying those rights, equal rights. So in a nutshell, he's basically rewriting the theoretical foundations of democracy in the Muslim world. And he argues that people have inherent rights given by God and they should exercise those rights given by God in the political space. No one can actually take those rights away from them. So that's the complete rejection of autocratic rule, theocratic rule, and at the same time opening a wide space for pluralism and democratic politics. But of course, maybe one thing to keep in mind is that liberal democracy is about diversity and pluralism, but it's not really about social liberalism. So I want to say that many of these liberal Islamists would be hesitant to accept gay marriage, for example, because that's the social aspect. But they would not discriminate on the basis of religious creed. So if you're an atheist, you're fine. You have citizenship rights. If you are a non-Muslim practicing Christianity or Judaism, it's fine. You have full citizenship rights. So what I find amazing about the Tunisian experience is that Ganushi went out of his way to make sure that different voices were actually represented within Tunisian government. I mean, Anada probably could have dominated those first few elections and just ridden the constitution completely on their own. But he really tried to show restraint within his party. I believe at one point they didn't run a presidential candidate so that they wouldn't dominate the government. They wanted to have a voice, a very strong voice, but he didn't necessarily want it to be the only voice. He wanted there to be multiple voices. I mean, that's a very sophisticated version of democracy that not many political parties would adopt, even in very liberal democratic countries. Absolutely. So they did a very fine job in submitting to two main norms of democratic politics that Levitsky and Ziblatt specify in their book institutional forbearance and toleration. So tolerating the other, the political other, and institutional forbearance, which is about not dominating the political space, even if you have the power to do so, is really a distinguishing factor. And Ganushi and Anahta were really mindful of that. And they did everything in their power to not dominate that space. They established a coalition government with secular parties from the get-go again. And they opened up that space of drafting the constitution to pretty much everyone. And they had multiple conversations with civil society organizations. They could very easily, again, dominated that space, as you said, but they chose not to because they understood democracy to be having partners in the democratic space rather than delegitimizing their rivals and trying to capture all the power. They were very much 
insistent that they were going to share that power because this was a transitional moment building a new democratic system. And they thought that it would be only possible if they had partners that they would actually maybe become rivals later on. So that was, again, as you said, a very sophisticated understanding of democracy, very much in tune with liberal democratic norms. So let's talk a little bit about the different experience that we see in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood. How did they adopt a different path? Like, what did it look like over in Egypt? It was the exact opposite, actually. So it's not to refrain from dominating that space. Muslim Brotherhood did everything in its power to dominate the new space that was opening up after the revolution. So Muslim Brotherhood had a very righteous majoritarian understanding of democracy, as Pavel defines. And they were really like, okay, it's our time now. We've been waiting for this moment for 80 years, and we are really good in organizing our political constituency. We are really good at mobilizing our support at the ballot box. We are going to win all of these races, and we're going to gain power. And once they gained power with, you know, multiple elections, they indeed did their best to capture every single part of the political system that was emerging at the time. And they dominated the constitutional process, drafting the new constitution. They dominated all the parliamentary committees that were trying to formulate policies. And they also captured the presidency, presidential office. And they started to rule really single-handedly, alienating lots of people in the meantime, of course, all the revolutionaries that were united against Mubarak. They practically excluded everyone from power, and they centralized and monopolized power in the hands of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, these are two countries that are trying to develop their political institutions. I mean, the constitutions don't exist yet. They have some traditions, but they're trying to figure out how do we incorporate elections? How do we incorporate democratic institutions into our governance model, into our political culture? But at the same time, I mean, I'm seeing so many similarities with experiences I see in liberal democracies. Like these are not tendencies that are Islamist. I mean, we see in the United States in different state parties, Republicans or Democrats taking power and not listening to the other side. We see in other countries that are described as liberal democracies having just conflict and real tensions within their democratic systems because some parties take a much more majoritarian stance in terms of how they think about democracy and don't want to include those who lost in the previous elections, like don't want to include the views of other people within society. I found it really interesting to think in these two cases how important it was to be a political party that really had a sense of what it meant to be democratic and how that actually changes the way that democracy actually works for that country. That's a very important observation, and I would like to argue that that's one of the key takeaways of this book, because this is really not about Islamist parties. It is actually about political parties writ large, because political parties are all composed of factions. We have different factions and tendencies within each political party, and it doesn't have to be an Islamist party. It can be any party, conservative party or or like more left-wing parties, doesn't matter. They all have factions within, and those factions may have very different orientations when it comes to what it means to hold power. So when I win an election, I can basically say, this is winner's take all. 
I have the power. I can do whatever I like because people voted for me. So if that's the understanding of a particular faction that dominates a political party or captures a political party, then democracy is in trouble because they have a very problematic understanding of democracy that basically excludes everyone else from power. And they see this as an opportunity to subvert democratic institutions in their own favor and maybe play the game in a very dirty manner. So the game is no longer fair and the playing field is actually getting tilted. So if I come to power with that understanding of winners take all, I start changing the judicial system. And if I have enough power, I can tweak the constitution. If I don't have that much power, I can maybe pass certain legislation that would change or undermine freedom of speech and freedom of the media. So this is really problematic, not just for, you know, these three countries that I study, but the case for all political parties, because all political parties are factionalized. And if we have certain factions with a very different understanding of democracy, very instrumentalist understanding of democracy, and they lean towards majoritarianism, then we have a problem in whatever democratic context we're in. So the AKP is really fascinating because it shifts from being more of a liberal democratic party to being more of what you describe as an electoral party, one that adopts more authoritarian tendencies. And we see that under Erdogan. I mean, Turkey has become very authoritarian, even though it continues to hold elections and embrace the electoral process. Those elections don't necessarily feel free and fair because the laws that surround them in terms of speech and in terms of freedom of the press aren't there. I mean, there's just so much repression within the country that it no longer feels like a democracy, even though the elections exist and the elections continue to be held. Why did the AKP shift from being more of a liberal party to becoming an electoral authoritarian party? It's all about distribution of power within the party organization. So AKP, when it was established in 2001, was a very different party than what we observe today. We can basically speak of two AKPs, perhaps. So that early AKP was really a different party because there was a very strong liberal faction within. Erdogan was still powerful. He had a lot of charisma as the party chairman, but his faction was not as prominent and dominant within the party organization in its early years. So that liberal faction, for example, led by Abdullah Gül, former president of the Turkish Republic, they had resources and they had expertise and they were populating key seats and also key seats in the cabinet. So all of that started to change when Abdullah Gül got elected as the president in 2007. At the time, the constitution required the president to be a nonpartisan figure. So he had to leave his party, resign from his party, and his ties to the party was basically cut off. And then we see his faction getting increasingly marginalized by Erdogan, who was now feeling more comfortable as the prime minister and the chairman of the party. No more, you know, important competition coming from or like, you know, checks and balances within the party coming from Abdullah Gül. So that was a huge space for him to fill in and also at the same time sideline anyone who would be closer to the liberal understandings of democracy. And he uses lots of different resources in the meantime to make sure that he can provide the right incentives to whoever is left in the party to be loyal to him. The way that you've been describing these parties, though, 
sounds like it's very elite driven. Ganusha shapes the way that Anata thinks. In Herky, the AKP is shaped by these two different leaders, Erdogan and a more liberal group that, again, are elites, that they are the ones that are seen as the leaders of the party. Is the direction of these Islamist parties, or really any kind of political party, is it more determined by its membership or is it determined by its elites? That's a very good and difficult question. I tend to put a lot more emphasis on the role of the elite, for sure. One of the reasons is, especially in the Turkish context, and maybe in, in the Tunisian context as well, and I, I would include Muslim Brotherhood too, these organizations are really hierarchical, oligarchic organizations. And indeed, scholars of political parties since early 20th century, like Robert Mitchell, actually argue that political parties are by nature oligarchic. You have the leadership playing a very important role in setting the course of the party, setting the trajectory of the party. So I am putting a lot of emphasis on the power of the elite in shaping what the membership of the party looks like, in shaping the trajectory of the party, its platform, perhaps because these parties have certain ideological tendencies towards having the elite as playing a vanguard role so they would lead the people who will follow. Perhaps there's something about the political culture in these countries because it's not just Islamist parties that have clear oligarchic tendencies. The same is the case for secular parties as well in all of these countries. So as we kind of look to close, one of the paradoxes that I'm trying to wrap my head around with the idea of liberal Islamism and electoral Islamism is that electoral Islamism seems as though it's more successful at the polls. The Muslim Brotherhood won hands down in Egypt. Turkey has continued to win the presidency. And before that, it had a dominance on parliament. I mean, Erdogan has been the most successful politician in Turkey for a very long time. Anada saw their numbers actually decline over time. They actually lost support in Tunisia. But at the same time, he made sure that they were able to have influence within Tunisia far longer than the Muslim Brotherhood did in Egypt because democracy actually hung on for long. So it just makes me struggle to understand how the democratic incentives kind of work for these Islamist parties. I mean, in some ways, I think the democratic incentives encourage electoralism in the long run. But in other ways, if you want to preserve democracy, maybe it encourages liberalism. I mean, do you think that Islamism is compatible with liberalism for a sustainable party in the long term, that they wouldn't be attracted to those potential electoral gains to be able to just win those elections? That is such a good question. I think there is a very major trade-off there for Islamists, as you beautifully summarized. So Muslim Brotherhood, went for winners-take-all logic, and they lost all power in a year. And now they're in a huge place where they're basically destroyed by the Egyptian state, and many of them ended up in prison or in exile. This is the most severe crisis that Muslim Brotherhood had observed in its long history. And then Inahda survived a lot longer but still, now we are actually seeing significant pressure from a different type of autocratic rule, Kaysaids. 
But they also managed to put the country on a democratic path that allowed the party to remain in the game for longer duration. So there is a very clear trade-off there. If Islamists, especially in these more perhaps polarized, hostile environments, if they are willing to stay in the game, they need to play the democratic game and do not take the winners take all logic. Because there will be a pushback. These contexts are not friendly to Islamist parties for sure. All of these three countries are very much deeply polarized along secular Islamic orientations. So if these Islamist organizations want to stay in these contexts and keep playing the democratic game, they need to commit to the democratic game in the longer run. But then again, we also have other trade-offs like Erdogan's case is very interesting because he went for winner's take all and he succeeded. He won the longer game. And then perhaps we need to think about other actors that may explain what happened in all three contexts. And I want to talk about, for example, economic success. So the reason why Anata potentially lost support over successive elections is the fact that they did a terrible job in governing the economy. So the revolution happened for a reason, and that reason was very much economic in its essence. People were miserable, they were unemployed, and they were not happy in Tunisia. That's why they overthrew Ben Ali's regime. And not the promise a new society, a new economy, a new regime. The entire Tunisian political elite, including Ennahda, did an amazing job in establishing democratic institutions and practices. What they couldn't do was indeed achieving economic success. And that indeed undermined their democratic experience. Erdogan, in contrast, in Turkey, did an amazing job in meeting the economic needs of the people. So one reason why he was so successful and he kept winning these elections is the economic growth that he could deliver in maybe the first decade and a half of AKP rule in Turkey. Now Turkey is in a really kind of in a top economic position. Yes, that's a problem. But he did a lot for the Turkish people for about maybe 14, 15 years. So that is a very important reason why he could pursue winners take all and, you know, win elections and also take that political power that comes with elections and turn the country's trajectory towards a more competitive authoritarian direction. And maybe also at the same time inject greater Islamic principles into the regime because he had credit from elsewhere, which is about economic success. Well, Shebnab, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. The book, one more time, is Democracy or Authoritarianism, Islamist Governments in Turkey, Egypt, and Tunisia. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Justin. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.
The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.